Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro The Fantastic Mr. Fox and pro John Let's Go podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have moved back into the realms of horror. This time specifically a horror comedy. Goes by the name of Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. Before we get into that, however, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Pretty pretty light week for me uh, this week. But there is a movie I saw in the cinemas that I was very interested in seeing, especially before we do our Best of 2022 list episode. Uh, It is Tar. It is a Mm -hmm. drama film directed by Todd Field, and it is about a controversial orchestra conductor named Lydia Tar. She's played by Kate Blanchett as she prepares for a symphony performance. But all of these minefields that her own personality and poor professional and personal conduct have set are... basically just start going off around her. (laughs) This is really, really excellent, but it's not for everybody. Um, It's not exactly entertaining, but it worms its way into your head, and it's the kind of movie that just sticks. And I've been thinking about it a lot since I saw it, and I just, I really ended up appreciating it. It's, It's a character portrait of a really complex person, and it layers in some of the problematic elements about her character gradually, which I think is good because it lets the audience in. It lets the audience start to like her or maybe not like her, but like like watching her before we have the chance to reject her because of her behaviour. Um, it's a smart I mean, way I, of doing it. Yeah, I started the first scene actually kind of liking her and then as the film goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> And to go, oh, no, you're a terrible person. Um, but the movie dares you to like her in some ways. Like like There Will Be Blood or House of Cards, where you're watching these people do really questionable things and objectionable things. But they're just so fun. Well, not fun, but they're just so compelling to watch do them. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. And also, but also unlike... There Will Be Blood or House of Cards, which is, I would argue that both of those stories pretty clearly signal to the audience like that in the end, this person is a villain. I've Um, heard comparisons made to something like Whiplash. Yes, I think that's a good, good example, except I think even more, um, even more not morally grey, because there is no morally grey. What she's The stuff that she's doing is, is morally wrong. But I think it's just a more complex character portrait. You know, she she is a more nuanced and multi-layered figure to build the movie around. And while the, the movie is, is very much like the movie has an opinion about her behaviour, it's wrong. The movie knows it is and the movie says it is. The movie doesn't, like, say 
the movie doesn't slip into the easy way out of, oh, she's just a villain. She's just a bad guy. She's just an evil person. No, she's a human being who's very, very complicated and has, as a result of that, done really awful things. And there's a sort of, like, messiness to that that sort of defies easy categorization in a a way that I think is more, more true to life than I think a lot of other movies of this type would. Um, That she is fierce and uh, difficult and objectionable, but also vulnerable and passionate. And it just, it creates this portrait of a whole person, not just the negative parts, which is a much more interesting idea to tackle, I think, than just, I don't know, a Harvey Weinstein proxy. And there's a bit of that in here. Um, uh, a lot of memes have come up about this movie. Oh, yes, yes. This I tell you, like, this character is just meme-tastic. Like, it is absolutely brilliant <laughs> for memes. I was obsessed with the memes after I saw the movie. It's, it is a gold mine, like, truly. Like, but the type of- for a good portion of time, I was seeing posts up about... This Lydia Tarr person, I was like, <laughs> I was aware that there was a movie I'd seen in the trailer, but I somehow got convinced that she was a real person, and this was a biopic, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, and then it, was the ex- best one- then it was later explained to me, I think by you, Lawson, that she was not a real person, that that was all just a gag that I bought myself into. <laughs> I think my favorite one is that I saw someone having having an issue with the fact that Tar was nominated for either one of the Golden Globes or, or an Oscar. Where when in this situation Lydia Tar is a horrible person and all of this stuff, and just the amount of memes where people are portraying her as a real person mm. is just hilarious. Well, there's this there's this parody Twitter account that is just pretending that it's Lydia Tarr's Twitter account. Yeah. Um, and it's like absolutely perfect. Like I sent you a bunch of screenshots. I'm just going to read a few of them out because they are brilliant. The film might very well be on Peacock now. Peacock in quotation marks. I wouldn't know. Personally, I have possessed a physical copy since September. But I'm sure you all will admire the picture just as much from your dirty laptop screens and water-damaged AirPods. <laughs> um, but then there's one that's like uh, a screenshot of a interview with Todd Field, like, what would Lydia Tarr's favourite movie of the year be? And he answers, oh, it'd be Tarr, definitely. But there's a screenshot of that under which the comment is, it's blonde. <laughs> Uh, there's like a weird, like, this, this whole Twitter account has like this gimmick where Lydia Tarr like hates Hans Zimmer and thinks he's a sellout. (laughs) Um. That's great. But like, some of this does, (laughs) some of this doesn't really play unless you've seen the movie, but the way that she's just so over dramatic and over serious and very, you know, uh, very convinced of the importance of herself and her opinions. Like, I take back everything I have said about COVID. I understand it as a minor cold. Unpleasant, but mild. This has changed. I am plagued with nightmares of mucus. The coughing has separated my soul from its corporeal form, 
from kings to peasants, sickness is the great equaliser. <laughs> <laughs> but then, my favourite one, the one that made me laugh out loud the most, just because of how random it was, but also how much it kind of fit the character, was, um, you remember how in December there was that, uh, that, aquarium in berlin that's suspended at the top of like a hotel mm. and the aquarium burst and all the fish fell down all the fish died yeah, no yeah, one else yeah, was, that's was hurt but like there's like she's she's linked the well, she i say this this fake twitter account has like linked that news article with the comment thank you all for checking in yes i am safe <laughs> brilliant <laughs> nice um, elegant and simple hmm my team has informed me that Cocaine Bear is, in fact, not about my one-time nemesis, Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, I, I'm telling you, it's a goldmine. And um, it is a brilliantly written character. It's such a great role for an actor to tackle. Uh, Blanchett is just brilliant. She is perfect. I would just want her... Like, I know I have competing instincts because on the one hand, I really want Michelle Yeoh to win for everything, everywhere, all at once. But on the other hand, Kate Blanchett is just kind of undeniable. And if I were to put those two performances against each other and, like, look at the name of that award, you know, Outstanding Lead Actress in a Motion Picture, this Kate Blanchett is just I, – I can't deny that that, for me, is a – is a better performance than almost any other performance. It is so good. Um, and the suits, my God, the suits that this character wears. I don't normally call out fashion on this podcast, but, like, the power suits are just extraordinary. Mm. Um, to the point where I'd be just like, yes, give them the Oscar for best costume design as well. Like, <laughs> um, but... Uh, it's got a very deliberate pace, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it's not going to be for everyone. It's two hours and 40 minutes long. Um, I never had a problem with that. I actually think it's very careful in its pacing, but you need to be prepared for a bit of a, you know, time spent with this character and time spent with these ideas and with a plot that doesn't really have a ton of structure in it. It's more like a month or two in the life of Lydia Tarr. Um, fairly eventful month, but that's the sort of... The, the guardrails of a normal, like, plot A to B to C aren't there. Um, and it's got a willful defiance of conventional rules. I mean, and the greatest example of this is the first scene, which is a 10-minute scene of her of her um, in an interview with a New Yorker journalist at a festival. And it's just 10 minutes of her and this real New Yorker journalist playing himself asking these questions about this fictional character's, like, inspirations and things and her thoughts about music and composing and stuff in front of a crowd. And it goes on, you know. And I found that riveting because of the writing, because of the performance, because of the character subtleties. And it tells you so much about that character pretty much right off the bat. It grounds you really well for the rest of the movie. But normal people probably will <laughs> not find that as compelling as I did. Um, but it's magnificently made as well. Uh, there are just gorgeous bits of filmmaking here. Field loves long shots. There's one scene in particular that is probably the most riveting scene of the movie and in a lot of ways kind of the most loaded and and uh, difficult to unpack, which is this scene of her teaching a classroom, uh, doing one of these sort of master classes and sort of coming into uh, conflict with a student 
who doesn't really challenge her, but she perceives it as a challenge. And so there's this very extended back and forth where she sort of singles that student out. And um, it's a very long scene with a ton of dialogue from Kate, uh, Kate Blanchett. Like you're talking like another 10 minute, maybe 15 minute long scene. That's the best in the movie. And it is the one shot. And the way that Kate Blanchett just sort of holds the screen and holds the the performance um, is just extraordinary. Uh, and the use of sound is absolutely brilliant as well. Like when the actual symphonies come in and the conducting comes in, the music just thunders out. It's really, really brilliant. Um, so, yeah, a movie that I really am quite taken with but will not be for everybody. I next saw Frozen. Not that one. Um, I was thinking that's, this one. That's a little. That's a little soon on the podcast. If we get into no, let it go. This is a survival thriller directed by Adam Green, and it follows a trio of young people: Dan, played by Kevin Zegers, his girlfriend Parker, played by Emma Bell, and his friend Joe, played by Sean Ashmore, who are on a ski lift to you know go skiing, as as the name might suggest, but. Uh, it's the very end of the day at the park and through a, a very unfortunate number of uh, mistakes, things going wrong, they get forgotten and the ski they, the ski lift gets turned off and they're sort of stuck there too far above the ground to safely jump. Um, and th- this is a Sunday evening, so the park will not be open again until Friday. Well, that's not ideal. Um, Shit. Yep. And as time goes by, it starts to get very, very cold, and then some wolves start to rock up as well. Oh, sick. Uh, this is very well scaled to its story. Like, the, the production values are very good, and it is harrowing. It, it wears its simplicity really well. It goes through every complication that could reasonably be thought of from this premise, and then it pieces out. It doesn't stick around. Like, I, I, I thought about this very... Um, it's a very similar movie in a lot of ways to that movie Fall that I talked about a while ago about those women stuck on top of the, the giant radio tower. The difference between this movie and Fall is that Fall is almost two hours long <laughs> and it's very indulgent and that was my big problem with it, whereas this is just quick, taut and you know laser-focused on what works for it. Um I think it's very well written. I think it's got some fairly three-dimensional characters with their own vibes. They're sometimes unlikable in the way that people in emergency situations can sometimes become unlikable, but they're always understandable and sympathetic. Mm. And I think that's the the real key point in making this work. Well, that, that's really and- the crux of something like this. You need to have that in with the characters. Mm. There's nothing worse than a disaster movie where you really don't give a fuck, to be blunt, about... The character's survival. You have to be engaged with them or else your in is just gone. And there are some properly upsetting moments. Mm. I mean, not just the part that earned it its R rating in America, like, but it does earn its R rating in America, um, but just people falling to pieces. And it's kind of this confronting raw emotion that is kind of difficult to contend with and kind of harrowing. Um, and it is willing to get graphic, uh, there's some teeth-clenching moments, for sure. There's a touch of body horror to do with frostbite and the like. Um, and there are some excellent performances by the main trio as well. Like These actors, I think, do really good jobs of uh, when it really is them for 90 minutes. 
Um, and it has an authenticity too, because it was shot on location. It wasn't shot on a sound stage on a green screen or anything. It was like, no, they actually would. These three actors were suspended in a ski lift for 12 hours a day above. Was it one of those the- enclosed ski lifts? No, no. Oh, shit. It's one of, like, just, like, like the... The ones you sit on? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. It's like a shelf with a bar in front. That's much worse. Yeah. Like, um, and, and filming it on the actual thing on site, that just... That does a hell of a lot of work for the actors. Because mm. they have to contend with the heights. Obviously, there's safety, you know... Yeah. ...apparatus to make sure that they're okay, but nothing can actually equate to being in the actual spot. Yeah, I think that um, it gives it a really good sort of scale and handle of scale as well, too, because it does feel... Um, it, it gives it a good sense of place, mm. and it makes it feel as big but also as contained as that story should, whereas I think it would be harder to get that balance right um, if they had been doing it again on a green screen. And I don't trust... Uh, movie from 2010, a low-budget movie from 2010's ability to do this right on a green screen. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, Adam Green is a director I quite like. He did the Hatchet movies. Uh, he did a movie called Digging Up the Marrow, which have you guys ever heard of that? No, I haven't. Don't don't look into it at all because that's definitely an episode and I would like you to go in as cold as possible, but that's a really interesting movie. But he's a, a guy I always keep an eye out for his work. Um, lastly, this week I watched Dante's Inferno. It is an animated gothic horror movie directed by Mark Deezer, Victor Cook, Sangjin Kim, Shuko Moraes, Zhong Siknam, Lee Sung Gyu, Yasumi Umetsu. All of those people directed this movie. It is based on the Visceral Games video game of the same name itself, based on the epic poem Inferno, which is the first part of Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. And it follows Dante, played by Graham McTavish. He's returning from the Crusades in, uh, I believe, the 1200s. And when he gets back, he finds his family slaughtered and his fiancée, Beatrice, uh, played by Vanessa Branch, taken by the devil, who is played by Steve Blum. Uh, She had made a, a bet with the devil to ensure his safe return from the Crusades, that he would be faithful while he was overseas. And whoops. Uh... But uh, Dante pursues Beatrice into hell with the guidance of the spirit of the Roman poet Virgil, played by Peter Jessup. He must descend the nine circles of hell to the devil's abode, basically, and rescue his his fiancée. It's a very interesting style. Um, It changes director um, frequently. So it's sort of made as kind of like a... A collage of all of these different directors' versions of hell. It, it's kind and of like that a Dead Space thing. That Dead Space tie-in. Oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. same kind uh, of thing. Yeah, it's it's a different every couple of circles. It changes director. It changes the design and the aesthetic, the character designs. Um, and it it would make more sense if there were ten directors instead of uh, I think six. If if it had been, like, one director for the real world and then another director for each of the nine circles, it would make more sense. As it is, I suspect it's just a, a better-than-average way to justify outsourcing your movie to a bunch of different animation studios. Um, but it is the Inferno through a very 2010 lens, a sort of very sort of 
gritty. Dante Alighieri kind of... by way of Kratos. Yeah, sure, definitely. Uh, the A twenty four version of Inferno would be so much more interesting. Um, but I think that have you guys played the game? No, I haven't. I've heard a lot. No, but I've got a relationship with the Divine Comedy. Yeah, yeah. I I played the game a few years ago. And it's pretty pretty good. It's um, actually really I mean, it hard is... to track down now. Well, yeah, on PlayStation it is. You can just buy it digitally to play on the Xbox Store, but um. And I think it's still available on the PlayStation 3 digital store as well. But, um, yeah, it is it is definitely Dante's Dante's Inferno through uh, God of War. But um, it's okay. It's decent. Yeah. Um, I think that as a story, it does a pretty good job, and this movie carries it over, of giving the Inferno a more central storyline. Um, and, and Dante himself a stronger motivation. There's sort of a a more direct through line to follow the story through. Um, and Dante in this movie, I think is a bit of a misstep because he's a real shit. Like he is like one of the worst possible people. And they keep having all these flashbacks to the stuff that he did in the crusade. And it just gets worse and worse and worse until finally you're looking at like, like Nuremberg level war criminal. And it's just like, okay, you might've taken this too far. Cause now I actually kind of think that, I'm kind of hoping that he stays down there, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, this is I where he belongs. A, yeah, I think that's a bit of a misstep. Um, but the imagery is is really interest, is interesting, but it is bound to the game. So it is taking a lot of what the game did. And as I said, the game was sort of basically like God of War through the aesthetic of Hellraiser. Um, again, very sort of late 2000s, capital G gamer mm. kind of... Aesthetic, Clive Barker's think... Devil May Cry, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, but like, kind of like Clive Barker has a bit more artistry <laughs> to what he does than <laughs> than that. But um, the action's okay. It's very bloody. I do think it it needed more to take more time to interrogate some of the sort of old school brimstone ideas hmm. that are attached here. I mean, the fact that. And it is true to the original, the original poem, but like the whole going through and I'll hear all of the souls mm. of unbaptized babies and things like, like that. Yeah. I, I love Dante's Divine Comedy, but it's all imagery. Like mm. it is, it is, it is him describing the circles of hell and what people he knows in his personal life he wishes would go there. Like, yeah. Dante's Divine Comedy is a very pointed social critique as well, which... Yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I know. I'm talking about, like, the 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 now very dated and archaic yeah. versions of what is and isn't enough to get you yeah. sent to hell. Um, that I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find a religious person these days who think unbaptized babies go to hell. But uh, reasonable ones, anyway. Um, oh, I'm not saying you can't find them, but like a lot of those people are not people I care to associate with. Um, but, uh, it does do that a little bit. I mean, Dante is sort of continually confused to find people in there that he sees as innocent, but I think that it, there could have been a slightly more pointed look on that. But of course this is a direct DVD animated adaptation of an EA video game, <laughs> knocking off God of War. So 
how much are you really going to get from that? So, um, but it's a decent voice cast. Mark Hamill is in it as well. And, uh, as, as usual, he's the best part of it, um, from a voice perspective. But if you would like to watch it in Australia, you can find it for streaming on the Stars channel on Amazon Prime. And that is it for me this week. What about you guys? What yep. have you been watching? Uh, so we watched a couple of things this week. Uh, the first I would like to talk about, just so we can get it out of the way, is a series I've been kind of excited for. Uh, it is a BBC historic... Well, it's a Netflix BBC, like, co-production. Uh, it is a historical documentary, you could say. It's called Kunk on Earth, uh, where we follow Philomena Kunk, played by uh, Diane Morgan, as she comically goes through the story of human existence on planet Earth, and and interrogates hard-hitting questions in her own fashion, shall, shall we say. Um, I watched a bunch of the Philomena Kunk clips. Uh, she did a series on England, the history of certain world religions, and it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of light fun, even though there are certain moments in which I feel my brain is slipping out of my head. Uh, with the turns of phrase that the character uses. Uh, this has a lot in common with a lot of Charlie Brooker's stuff. Like, Charlie Brooker was connected to a lot of the original uh, Philomena Kong stuff, and he comes back here. And, I don't know, it's just a hell of a lot of fun. Have you heard of this character before, Lawson? I have, yeah. I've seen clips and stuff of it, and uh, it has turned up in my monthly... My monthly, um checking of new TV releases to see if they get added to the list. Mm. I'm, I'm a little torn as to whether I should consider it a documentary or a, <laughs> a scripted show. It's a bit of both, to be honest. It is definitely mm. structured I mean, like a documentary. I've, I consider, uh, what was, I, I ended up calling Who is America documentary yes. instead of mm, scripted. Yes. And I think that's, so, a, that's a good instinct. Um, yeah, because you're dealing with a fictional character played by an actor, but they're talking to real people. Yeah. So I feel like that in itself makes it more documentary. Something like Borat, I argue, is documentary. Because it's documenting how people do act. Yeah, there's a, there's a level of... There's, of course, a level of artifice present. Every person that... Diane Morgan is interviewing as Philomena Kunk. They are aware that this is an act, but they don't know what she's going to say before she says it. So every question she asks them, they have to somehow decipher off the cuff. Some people are better at it than others. Like, you can see yeah. that some people have, like, so much patience, and they actually speak through the issues in a very simple yet elegant way. And other people are just flustered, and they don't know what to do. And you see them sitting there, lost and alone, in a void of ignorance and stupidity, with, like, unmoored I, from any reasonable sense. This is a, a side tangent, but do you remember that very short-lived Australian TV talk show, David Tench Tonight, yes, with the animated yes. Yes, CGI interviewer? My favourite clip from that was when he interviewed, like, two of the Wiggles, and he was asking them, like, really extreme, like, inappropriate <laughs> questions, like, um, which, like, 
uh, what was my favourite one was like, and you, it was exactly what you're talking about, where they just don't know what to do. I mean, they knew the gimmick going in, but they didn't understand what was going to be presented. They never my favourite one was like, he's like, hypothetical. Um, you get a call from the CIA that Osama Bin Laden is in the Dorothy the Dinosaur costume. Do you, A, uh, let him escape and thus protect your, uh, no, it's, do you, A, uh, let him escape so to prevent him from making a scene, or do you, B, allow the CIA to come in and gun him down in front of thousands of screaming children? (laughs) (laughs) And they're just sitting there like, oh, God, what do I say to that? What do I do? That's a fucked up possession to put Wiggles in. But then he's just like- That's um, such a great question. Is it like Oscar the the Octopus is like, um, yeah, which Oscar the Octopus, Dorothy the Dinosaur, Wags the Dog, which one of them would you rather eat? (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, Oh, that's going to be an upsetting discussion with- the octopus once they decide that he's the one who's gonna go. Mm. Well, that's a, they said something about like David Tench is like it's like calamari. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, oh, it's yeah, very it's, similar I miss that show. to that sort of thing. I absolutely my love my this favorite kind of part thing. of David Tench like there is a clip that and there, this was like three years before it actually happened. But Julia Gillard went on, and the first question he asked her was, "So Julia." How long until you knife Kevin in the back and take the job for yourself? <laughs> oh, it is wow. <laughs> it's funny because and it's a thing that we never believed, but our dad would routinely claim to be David Tench. Because he could, he could, <laughs> like, have been the he voice could legit actor. do the voice. Like he was very good at mimicking that television presenter. It wasn't exactly like that, but that kind of intonation. Right. Hang on. I think this is... If Captain Feathersword was fighting in Iraq, how long would he last? <laughs> I think he... He's, he's, he's charming everybody. They'd all be laughing. He'd be tickling them. And, it's uh, pretty much a bit. Maybe, maybe that's what we need. Everybody be laughing. Yeah, okay. Maybe. I tell you what, I'd give Captain Feathersword three days in Iraq. Yeah, a sword in Iraq made out of feathers counts as a weapon of mass destruction. Yeah. Do you, do you, ever, do you ever look at that? You're stumped there, aren't you? Stay with me, Anthony. No, I mean, yeah. Tenchi, yeah. He's oh, yeah. just yeah. trying to decide We've never talked about the Iraq war before, is it? We don't know. Maybe you should. Maybe <laughs> children would be interested. We like to, you know, give the happy things in life. You know? Oh, God, what could be happier than blowing people up? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it really is something. I do love stuff like this because it's able to work with the nature of our reality. And it's just a lot of fun. And they're very light watch the Philomena Kong series of stuff. Like, there's this whole thing yeah, she did a- on Shakespeare... And it was just hilarious. One of the questions she asks someone is, how do they get the sound into the ink so that when you read it, the words play in your brain? And and the, this expert was just like trying his best not to bleed out of his he nose. He answers the question very diplomatically, though. He The way he puts it is something along the lines of, well, the sound isn't actually in the words, but... 
you look at the words that are written down, and because you know what those words sound like, they play in your brain. This is my favorite Philomena Conk clip. It's comforting, isn't it, to realize we don't have nuclear weapons these days? Well, it depends who you mean by we. Uh, the British have got nuclear weapons and have recently indeed uh, decided to increase their... Uh, the number of warheads that that they possess. Yep, yeah, but they're, they're blanks, aren't they? They're full of blanks. No, not at all. No, no, these are these are fully capable missile systems with nuclear warheads. Many other states have them. I'm afraid that nuclear war and the threat of nuclear destruction remains very much with us. All right, can we talk about something a bit more cheerful? Anything you like. <laughs> Do you like ABBA? I love ABBA. Yeah. 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 <laughs> What's your favourite ABBA song? Dancing Queen. Dancing Queen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? Like watching her <laughs> face fall as she realises the enormity of that is just brilliant, and like the truly stoic look this guy is giving—it's like he's trying so very hard <laughs> to not give anything it away is the on his face. De- it is the most deadpan you will ever hear someone say. I love ABBA. I love ABBA. <laughs> it's, it's honestly such but, brilliant stuff. And you do learn a thing or two. Um, yeah, it goes... This one goes through the history of life on Earth. And it is just as funny as the previous Philomena Kung things. It is such... Like, one of, one of my favorite phrases that she use, uses is... Philosophy, which is just thinking about thinking. <laughs> and it's like... The way that they're able to use simple language to explain large concepts, maybe not in the complete sense, but in a very straightforward sense, is always entertaining to me. Yeah, the way she phrases things, it's a very fantastic character being played by Diane Morgan. It is a full-bodied performance. Like, the character is a fool written in a way that only smart people can do. And that's the greatest thing about it. I... I cannot wait to watch more of this because I know that it will both make me frustrated and very, very happy uh, going into more of it. You can find Conk on Earth on Netflix. You can find clips of uh, the other Philomena Conk specials on YouTube. And I'm assuming from the UK, you can look through the BBC for a lot of that sort of stuff. We also watched a movie that Lawson very much suggests. Well, you can't look at me expectantly when you haven't mentioned the movie's title, Sean. I don't know what you're talking about yet. Smile. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yes. Not only did we watch Smile, but we also watched the short film that it is based on. It is titled Laura Hasn't Slept. Both are directed by Parker Finn. After witnessing a bizarre incident involving a patient, psychiatrist becomes increasingly convinced that she is being threatened by an uncanny entity. But I will let Harley speak about how he felt about this movie before I talk about it. I was quite happy that we watched the short film before we got into the actual movie, because the short film, uh, Laura Doesn't Sleep, was it? Laura Laura Hasn't Slept. Works as a very, very good prologue for this film. Uh, because it leads directly in, and that is a hell of a lot of fun. I love to see that kind of connectivity between a, sort of a short film that was like testing a concept and the film that actually makes it happen. Uh, sim- similar things was done in 
Lights Out, or where the short film was emulated in the actual movie that came out later on. But Smile just simply expands on a lot of the concepts present in Laura Hasn't Slept. The performances are really great. I love what Sosie Bacon is doing, because she's got so much detail here in the performance. Whenever she's trying to explain herself, she apologizes a lot, and that's something I really started to notice as the movie was going on, because they don't draw a lot of attention to that. But you can tell why she does that. It's because of a lot of trauma she has from her history and how she has had to function as a person since then. The entity at play here is very, very interesting. Because like Lawson said in when he talked about Smile, the creature doesn't have to smile. The creature is smiling because they're just loving this. And there's discussions of trauma. There's a pattern that this entity follows that is based on trauma. And it's just very, very interesting. It felt a lot like The Empty Man because you couldn't trust a lot of what you were seeing because the creature can convince you of things. Yeah. We should say it's not nearly as weird as The Empty Man in the story. Oh, no, no, Not no, nearly no. as weird, but it has a similar vibe. I compare it to, like, The Empty Man, The Night House, that kind of energy, but it's a lot more commercial than uh, The Empty Man would be, but it still has a lot of edge in and of itself. I love the third act. It really goes to a wild place, and some of the imagery they do is not what I anticipated, um... But it is really great. The supporting cast is pretty good, too. Uh, Jesse T. Usher plays the fiancé of our lead character, Rose, played by Sosie Bacon. We got Kyle Garner here as her ex-boyfriend. Uh, I, w- I recognize him from Smallville, where he played Impulse. And it's good to see that he's still working, because he's pretty good here as a supporting role. It's interesting to see him and Jesse T. Usher share a film. <laughs> Because Jesse T. Usher plays A-Train on yes. The Boys, <laughs> and both of them are speedsters. I just found that really funny. And uh, coming back from Laura Hasn't Slept, Caitlin Stacy comes back as that character. We also have Carl Penn. Rachel from Neighbours. Rachel from Neighbours. Su- yes. Susan's stepdaughter. Yep. And it's always fun to see people from Neighbours show up in things. It was just, like, really, really strong cost. Can't pick out a bad performance in a lot of them. And, I don't know, I just had a really, really solid time with this one. Can I ask, um, I mentioned when I talked about it, while I like the ending and I like the sort of degree it goes, Mm. just goes for it, um, I do wonder whether the way it properly ends kind of works against the thesis of the movie up till that point. Did you guys feel that as well, or am I alone in that? It muddies things, absolutely. Yeah. But... I also see why they did it this way just for the gut punch of it. Hmm. And it's a it's a very striking ending, I'll give them that. But it does money the message. Uh look, I don't think it is nece- it's I don't think it's trying to say anything by that particular ending. Does it pervert the message the entire but it just movie- uh, muddies things a little bit. I think it's yeah, it's it's a little complicated, hmm. let's say that. I really enjoyed this. I didn't think I would enjoy a movie with a bunch of people creepily smiling and spiking camera, but 
I did really enjoy this. The performances are really what elevates this. So, one second. Sosie Bacon. Sosie Bacon. Daughter of Kevin. Absolutely. Sorry? Daughter of Kevin. Oh, really? Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but she's great here. She plays withered and tired and stressed out very well. But I have to give major props to Caitlin Stacy for a spectacular performance here. Like, particularly she in does... the Laura Hasn't Slept short. Incredible. Yeah, she's fantastic here. I also have to give props to all of the actors who do do the smile. There was no special effects or anything done to the smiles to make them creepy. That's all just the actors, because it was a very specific thing that the director was looking for. You can tell that Parker Finn has a lot of love and respect for this story, and it's a story that he really wants to tell. It does brush up against some really important discussions about trauma and how trauma can jump from person to person, but it is definitely more about the things that have happened in our pasts that affect Mm. us. And that's really where the movie has its most interesting elements. This creature feeds on your past, Mm. and it uses your past as a weapon. That is used a lot in the third act. And it just has a hell of a time doing it. Yeah, with some fantastic designs and scares. You know me, there's there's a particular couple of things in third (laughs) act which freak me out. But John's spoken about those certain you... things with uh, us before. His particular fear spots. Uh, yeah. There was that in but Barbarian. There I was loved... that here. <laughs> I loved that. That It wasn't necessarily freaking me out like it did in Barbarian, but it was still just really cool. See, I felt like nothing scared me more in a movie from 2022 than that final sequence. Mm. Yeah? Yeah. It's intense. That was, yeah. And it was, like, the design of it, and it really does, like, I think that the smile just being a malicious thing, like, once you finally get to the end there, that, like, takes that into overdrive, and, um, yeah. Like, that, the smile is That scared part of, me more than Barbarian. Yeah, like, the smile's not part of the curse. It's mm. just, like, no. it just fucking loves this. <laughs> it loves what it does, and honestly, it makes you smile just to see someone have such a love for their work. <laughs> I knew where, as soon as you started that sentence, I knew where you were going with that. When you love what you do, yeah, you never work think... a day in your life. <laughs> exactly. I just think that there are ways that if this smile demon or Lovecraftian eldritch horror sits down and really plans th- some things out, it can maximize like, its reach. I, I, I couldn't help but think about the specific way that the creature spreads itself, what Hmm. if it decided to go big? And they didn't address that, but that's the most terrifying thought to possibly have coming out of that movie. Yeah. Because you could could just picture it, and it's a wild thought. Like, that gives, like, a lot of potential for, like, a sequel. But overall, this was fantastic. The, I think the most horrifying scene for me was a scene at a birthday uh, party. That's, <laughs> it wasn't the scariest for me, but it's definitely the most disturbing. Mm. Yeah, it the entire time I was begging for it to cut to her waking train, up. Train, train, but train, when, train. 
But when it didn't, I was pleasantly surprised, because that's usually the kind of status quo change in a movie that gets retconned quick. But I'm glad we like were the forced to sit. In stuff like that. The, it's Felt like the like gas like yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but overall, really I thought good this movie. was fantastic. The effects are brilliant. The cinematography is great. Mm. And I really enjoyed the score, which helped give it this really tense feeling. But yeah, I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed the original mm. short film. Although the designs of things, I think, work better in the main mm. film. But overall, all of the interesting cinematography, the brilliant acting, all of the ideas are present in Laura Hasn't Slept. Do watch them together. So if you... Do watch them together. Yeah, they include they, they include the original short film on the Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's very interesting to see that this was sort of a crystalline idea from the get-go. And is it very similar to something like The Ring or The Grudge or even It Follows? Yes. Sure. It's a viral curse, quote-unquote. But it does enough interesting in its own right to very, really make it something fun and it's special. It's a very compelling version of that story. Uh, you can yeah. find Laura Hasn't Slept on uh, YouTube, and you can find... I'm not sure where to find Smile in Australia. We watch it through the VPN, uh, just so we can get around to it. Um, but yeah, that's... We've got six more movies that we have to watch by the end, by the time we record our... Some that we... Uh, best of 2022. Some that we... One of which is coming to cinemas. Yeah, one that we actually have to wait for. Yeah, one, um, we are currently, I think, we're talking about doing it at the moment towards the end of... Like, the episode will air towards the end of March. Mm. Yeah. Um, we were going to do it a little bit <coughs> earlier, but then a couple of movies ended up getting pushed to March 16th in Australia that we both want to... Well, you guys want to see one that I want to see. We both want to see Pearl, the, yep. the ex-prequel. Yes. I also want to see the Bill Nye movie Living, which comes out on the same mm. day here. So if everything goes to plan, we do want to leave like a bit between... Um, yeah, probably when like April 1st, we actually. Because you want to yeah, think exactly. it's You're probably looking at that episode coming out on April 1st. <laughs> Interesting April 1st for people. Mm. Um, well, it's that's six, just the... it comes out on the 16th mm. and then we want to see it. Yeah. And then we would only be able to record it the next week. So, yeah, April 1st. It, it's mm. just the nature of how it is in Australia. We get a lot mm-hmm. of stuff that's held back from the previous years. It's just the nature well, I don't of the know. I, I, I think it's kind of good, too, because it, it lets the lists be our list and not caught up in the flurry of whatever the consensus pick was mm. in December. Yeah. I think you always got to leave the the best of a year list for like a couple of months in at least. Gives you time to reflect and catch the stuff you didn't get well, to. Has a little more permanence a couple of months in. Yeah, like it could stick a lot better. In December, Yeah, you know, st- stuff's still coming out. I know we've talked before about, and we wouldn't be able to do it until I'm more caught up on the list than I am, but I know we've talked before about doing a, perhaps a 10-year-later best of. Mm. So, you know, best of... I don't know, 2013 or something, um, and really seeing which ones had staying power. Mm, um, sure. I think that would be interesting, especially given like all of the extra like smaller things that we 
wouldn't have seen in the year. Mm, mm, yeah. We would have had time over those. But anyways, that's a future discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Takoon Dale vs. Evil. Oh, jeez. Whoa, Jesus. Did you see the way those guys looked at us? Who wants to go skinny dipping? It's just a cabin. It doesn't mean they're psycho killers. Then why don't you go in there and talk to them? All right. Maybe I will. I said maybe. Dale? What are you doing? I'm, I'm digging a crapper hole. You mind if I help? He's making her dig her own grave. There's no rules out here. It's us against them. No! Oh, good. Look, your friends are here. friend out there. He must be allergic to bees or something because he was running like a bat out of hell. This is a suicide pack. These kids are coming out here and they're killing themselves all over the woods. Oh my god, that makes so much sense. The girl that we have, she can maybe explain the whole thing. You've got another one inside. Oh, she's in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we gotta take the safety off on the side there. Don't do it! Ah! Time to start being more careful! Get up, get up, get up, get up! Time to die, freak! Fire! Stop, stop, a roll! No, don't, don't use that! Let's get you down from there. Wait! Sorry about that. This vacation sucks. That was the trailer for Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. It is a horror comedy directed by Eli Craig and it follows Allison, played by Katrina Bowden, a psychology student who heads into the woods with some friends on a camping trip. Things aren't going as well as they should be. The dull-eyed rednecks they met at the petrol station gave everyone the creeps. But a more immediate concern is Chad, played by Jesse Moss, uh, an arrogant prick who keeps trying to flirt with her. She's ready to enjoy a relaxing night swim in the river to take her mind off it all when she spots the same two rednecks watching her from a fishing boat. Freaked out, she slips and hits her head, knocking herself unconscious. When she awakes, she's in a broken-down cabin that is in the process of being fixed up by the rednecks. Tucker, played by Alan Tudyk, and Dale, played by Tyler Labine. They're actually very sweet, and Alison feels bad about assuming the worst of them especially since Dale rescued her after she hit her head. The pair tried to alert her friends to her predicament, but they, like her, perceived them to be scary backwards people, and so they made a run for it, assuming that they'd kidnapped Alison for their own foul ends. While she waits for her buddies to show up and retrieve her, Alison gets to know Tucker and Dale. The latter has a barely distinct... 
The latter has a barely disguised crush on her, and they bicker like an old married couple. She likes them, which is why it is extra distressing when her friends return and try to kill them. They think they're rescuing her, but that misunderstanding goes grisly when, through a string of misadventures, their attacks on the hillbillies result in their own accidental deaths. The ringleader of all this chaos is Chad, who has no interest in Alison's explanations. He's out for blood, and he has his own tenuous motivation for getting it. A bewildered Tucker and Dale try to survive the onslaught, but even if they do live through this, they can't help but wonder, given their recent track record, will anyone ever believe that this wasn't their fault? So, before we I get too deep into this... What what about it? Oh, <laughs> uh, it's just running through all that stuff. I just love that. The 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 miscommunication all of that is just a lot of fun. Um so before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed thirty second thoughts on Tucker and Dale versus Evil? Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I really enjoyed this. This movie is smart as a whip. I love how its theme isn't necessarily don't judge a book by its cover. It's, as Harley and I discussed it while we watched it, it is more along the lines of a panicked, it's not what it looks like. (laughs) And there is a slight difference of the intensity of the feeling there, and that's what this movie captures. The kills are just hilarious for the most part, and I love it. Alright, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. You know me, I love a good horror comedy, and this trades on a lot of imagery from some of the greats. Like, from the top, it's trying to make you think Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think that's blatantly obvious. But it's a lot of fun, too. I love Tucker and Dale and their friendship. Like, they're just... The chemistry is so good. Alan Tudyk is great. The actor who plays Dale is fantastic as well. And I love the fact that it's based on farce and miscommunication. That's just a hell of a lot of fun for me. I really, really enjoy this. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's very funny. Uh, I agree with you, Harley, that the performances are all great. But what I really enjoy is how they sort of take all of these sort of backwards horror tropes and uh, diffuse them all into the most benign explanation possible. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, what I love is like the creepy, the creepy hot, dilapidated house. It's actually just a vacation home that they've bought on the cheap to fix up, and <laughs> so they could go on fishing trips. Like, that's the stuff I really enjoy like, here. All, all, all of the shit hanging off of the <laughs> ceiling, all of the newspaper clippings. Previous tenants. Yeah, I love how <laughs> I love how the the characters, the college students that we expect to be the be the victims. They don't get to meet a harbinger, but Tucker and Dale, they get a harbinger in the form of the cop who's warned them not to spend time up at that cabin. Mm. And just like the way they play with structure and imagery is so fantastic here. I love when the college students get to the service station and you just see a like a raggedy kid in overalls just pumping water. It's like, yeah. that's some haunting ass imagery. Well, you brought up um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but there's a lot of deliverance in this as well. Yeah. Like um, the, I was expecting them to turn and see a kid playing the like banjo. Like, is the one thing they're missing. Like some, <laughs> some weird Appalachian bullshit. I think it's interesting to unpack 
the way that they unfold a lot of this information to us, that we start out from the perspective of the college kids. Mm. That's yeah. the first... It, the the first instance of us being introduced to Tucker and Dale versus Evil is the sort of slack-jawed stare at them yeah. <laughs> as they drive past in the car. <laughs> but I actually think it's really... Um, it's interesting the way that they switch to Tucker and Dale's mm. perspective very quickly mm. after that because I think that if they hadn't, there would be a lot of preconceptions on the part of the audience that the movie would find troubling to overcome. I mean, there's, there's one... Um, there's one version of the movie you can imagine that tells it entirely from Alison's perspective until she wakes up in the cabin. Mm. Mm. Like but do that, a, I think, do would... a Glossongian kind of structure. Yeah. Well, now that you now that you say that, that would work actually if they then mm. did flashbacks to um, to Tucker and Dale. Like, I was thinking more like, of if to they the had the point where she wakes up and actually meets Dale for the first time. It's told completely from Alison's perspective, and then yeah. we get all of that previous shit from Tucker and Dale's perspective leading into it, then we meet up in the middle and then go on from there. Yeah. Because at that, that would point, actually... not too much of the movie has actually gone past. Yeah, I, I now that you say that, I actually think, yes, that would work. I was more thinking if we didn't have that stuff with Tucker and Dale talking to each other um, earlier on, that if they, they need that stuff to... So that we know it's not a trick, that, yes, mm. these guys are just really sweet and nice. And I think that if... Because of the way that horror convention is, I think if we didn't have that stuff, it would be... Uh, I think there would be a lot of members of the audience who thought that mm. a trick was being played on them and would be waiting for the mm. shoe to drop. Yeah. Yeah. But I do love how this movie is filmed like a horror movie. Mm. It has the bona fides behind it. All of the shots of Taku and Dale before we meet them have these moments and they utilize the imagery of hillbilly in the woods very well like the hero shot of dale trying to find tucker is like oh in different circumstances that is a crazy hillbilly running through the woods with a machete trying to kill someone but it's the fact that we have that context which is able to expand our worldview and i I do think that that is the the major strength of this movie, context is king. Because, mm. like, I just think about the scene where uh, Tucker has been uh, soaring into the log and he accidentally soars into a bee's nest, beehive. And yeah. he runs out from around the corner trying to escape the bees. He's swinging the chainsaw above his head like Leatherface. The college kid yeah. that that saw him misconstrues that and so starts booking it through the woods with Tucker but, also trying to escape and then the kid impales himself on a stick. Yeah, but that's the thing. Tucker <laughs> sort of like pulls ahead and starts to go past the kid and the kid looks yep. over confused and that's when he gets impaled on the branch. And then it, Craig stays with him, um, mm. that, that kid, as he dies and it gives him this little moment where this kid goes, oh... And then he dies. <laughs> well, he seems <laughs> to be. Yeah, exactly. Like, he figures it out. And I think that <laughs> that's the, the extra touch there that I really like. It's a nasty touch, but it's a it's a touch that I really enjoy. Like, and, but, and, like, you're, you're and, exactly right. It's so much the way that Tucker is, like, flailing with that chainsaw. It is, as, as you mentioned earlier, using all of that imagery. That is straight from the ending of the first Texas Chainsaw mm. Massacre movie. And... And I also love when the kid is walking towards the cabin, there's like a fucked up bird 
sitting on a creepy sign. There's a bunch of busted, rotted out cars just strewn about the place. There's animal skulls. There's all of this. The, the whole shebang, basically. It looks like you're walking towards the cabin from the Evil Dead. <laughs> like, everything about the way that this place looks and the way that this place feels, the gnarly trees around it, is screaming at you, Hey guys, uh, this is a dangerous place full of fucked up people. You shouldn't be here. Like, and that, and that, that, that's the really fun thing about this movie. It plays itself honest. It's not trying hmm. to trick you. It's it's tr- it presents everything you need. Like the the character turn of Chad. It's it's plainly obvious to see from the top that he's an obsessive guy. That he's a controlling guy. And I love the little touch that I picked out when we were watching what the actor's doing when he gets upset. There's a twinge of a southern accent there. There's like. Oh, that's kind of cool. The smallest hint of it, and like the part where I picked the way he it, the says part where I these it here is when woods. he was like acting real creepy to Allison near the top, and I was like, mm. "Oh, I see where they're going," and and that's a hell of a lot of fun because that actor is actually he's actually put that work in, and oh, major props to him. <laughs> he plays. <laughs> he goes there. Shitty horror movie boyfriend popped collar. The whole, the whole nine yards, so brilliant. And I love how like, but how easy, <laughs> how quickly he goes into yeah. let's kill him. Yes, he and he's always got this axe with him. So when you do get that reveal that he is half hillbilly, <laughs> it you think back to these moments and it's like, oh shit, it actually kind of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, uh, the, the actor who plays Chad is Jesse Moss. Um. He's been in a couple of things. Uh, he's been working regularly, not really in high scale stuff, but consistent work nonetheless. He was in Final Destination Three, uh, The Uninvited, and a bunch of other stuff. Consistently working actor, just not in a lot of high class yeah. stuff. But I think this is a fantastic performance from him because he is playing on every single stereotype of shitty asshole college douchebag. His name's Chad, for God's sake. And, and the other college students are thin, thin characters as well. And that works to this movie's advantage so much. I, I- See, this is the thing. I don't really like the whole half hillbilly thing. Mm. I think it's an extra, it's an extra thing that I, in some ways, sort of undermines some of what the movie is saying about not judging a book by its by its cover mm. that hillbilliness as being this sort of hereditary thing or or in the case of Chad as being kind of a you know he's inherited his father's hillbilly evil like there mm. there is a bit there that kind of confuses the point a lot by the end um that i think doesn't really work, and that's I don't like that stuff with the finale. I don't like yeah. the stuff at the locking camp. I think here that it sure. it goes too far. I think that bringing in the whole child of rape thing is kind of a disconcerting and jarringly mm. nasty thing to bring into what has been up until this point a fairly light-hearted mm. horror comedy. Mm. Um, yeah, it kind of would make more sense if he was just the kid of yeah, just victims him a of the crime. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Just make him a shitty frat guy. Or, or you could have it that it was his father who was killing the rest, but his father wasn't the hillbilly at all. Yeah, like, like Patrick it, Bateman type. Yeah, like you, out on. you'd you spin it in the way that there were no hillbillies. <laughs> it, and Yeah, what was the thing you said to me? The moment he starts being controlling and pushy, you, you said to me, Harley, oh, he's going to be the killer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is the thing. It sort of loses some of the parody when it does all of this. Yeah. And it starts to play it straight. All of these things that it's been talking about so far, hillbillies being scary automatically, um, you know, sort of uh, all these horror tropes of, like, inherited evil and things, it starts to play them straight in a way that I, I think is kind of... I, I won't say it undoes the movie, but it, it does. It's not in keeping with the kind of cleverness that has been coming before it. Hmm. Um, oh, absolutely. I I do agree with you. And that last, like the final fight thing at the sawmill, it kind of uh, it moves away from the horror comedy of it all. I tend to find, hmm. even though I'm I still yeah, enjoy it- the sequence, but it loses kind of its unique identity. Yeah, I didn't really end up vibing with it as much as I have done the rest of the movie. Mm. Like, up I think to that what point, would have been, it, it has it. You know. If there had been... There would have been a better way to pay it off somehow. Like, mm. I, I think of the ending... The spoiler alert for Get Out. But I think about the ending of Get Out where the cop car pulls up and you think it's going to go one way, but it goes the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think if they had managed something like that, something that paid off all those ideas about um, preconceptions and the sort of biases with which people approach Tucker and Dale, if they had done that in a in a different way, I mm. think could have thematically ended the movie in a more complete fashion. Are we to take it that their um, their vacation cabin is the cabin of the murderous hillbilly from like twenty years earlier? I th- I think, I think so. so. Like mm. it was just like they just bought it on the cheap yeah. uh, from like the from the like the bank or something. I I could see that being the context, and I also like the fact that what you see Tucker and Dale wearing that's the clothes they're wearing to work on the cabin. That's not mm. what they mm. casually wear from day to day. Yeah. Like they 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 very likely don't even work. They don't even live out in the backwoods. They probably just live in town, and they mm. just sound. Mm. And look the part. Um, and that's a lot of fun, too. I I love how Tucker and Dale also make assumptions about the kids. Like, that this is a, mm. this is a sick suicide pact. A freaky mass suicide pact. Like, like they read about one the of papers. them impales himself on a stick <laughs> and another throws himself into like, a thresher. Like, it's the, it's the lack of communication between the two groups. Yeah. And people taking I mean, certain it, knowledge for granted. That's just so hilarious to me. Yeah, I mean, it begins with the sort of dead-eyed, slack-jawed stare out of the car window. But also, Dale walking up, carrying a scythe, <laughs> and being like, it's Hey, you kids going camping? <laughs> this is maniac walk. he's just bad with people. He's just nervous, is the thing, yeah. I know. And I think... I think you get a lot out of, I don't know, it's sort of interesting that they cast Alan Tudyk and Tyler Labine as these characters, because neither of them are, you know, neither of them are, I don't don't even know, like... Neither of them are particularly rural. Exactly. Which is, I think, what gives them the, 
what plays into kind into kind of that sort of book and its cover thing is that um, they look the part when they're done up in overalls and you know they've been lit right and they've had the makeup put on and everything, but when they actually talk and they've got this kind of like goofy friendship thing, mm. when you see their personalities, it sells it really really well. I think that they're not Cletus. It's like at, at the really end do- where he shows up in the hospital. Uh, he's, like, in his bowling shirt, he's cleaned up a bit, and that's just- the way they play with the imagery is just a hell of a lot of fun. I- I really like what Labine and Tudic are doing as well. Not only do they have really, really great chemistry with each other, but Labine and Bowden, uh, who plays Allison, have good chemistry as well. Yeah, I think they've got a, a sweet rapport. Yeah. I do think that the romance stuff is a little bit distracting for me. I'm not sure I I'm not sure they do enough work, frankly, yeah. to really mm. sell me on her getting together with him at the end. She's also She's knocked out for quite a bit of the film. Yeah. She's knocked out for a good portion of the movie too. Uh, yeah. but I do like but what I, I don't is think, doing as well. Like, like yeah, but I think that there's a way to sort of pitch the script as her being like really sort of much more comfortable with them than she is with the college kids. It would require her yeah. to be more of a more of a participant in a lot of the story. Mm. Um, yeah. That I think once we, when we get to that bit at the end with the the bowling alley and she and Dale are a couple. I think that that's just one jump too far. Too far. Yeah. In the character mm. development, I think that we needed to see a little more of them together mm. to really get there. Like, and I do also like learning a little bit about. The character of Allison grew up on a farm. She's studying mm. psychology. She wants to be a counselor. She wants to help people. And that's also some don't judge a book by its cover stuff as well, because college students in horror movies must be studying something, or else they wouldn't be yeah. at college. <laughs> and that's a good point. They so rarely learn anything about that. Like, they play a lot with that in, like, Cabin in the Woods as well, um, which mm. I would also very clearly state as a horror comedy. Oh, yeah. I love Captain Woods. And, you know, that's something we never hear. We never hear, say, what Ash Williams is studying at college. Uh, we, we never mm. learn about what the camp counselors want to do with the rest of their lives in Friday the 13th. <laughs> yeah. Like, we, we spend very little time at school in Nightmare on Elm Street. It's, it's that kind of thing that is really fun when it gets addressed. Because they're the they're the mm. things you just take for granted, you know. Mm. And 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 I do like how she tries to use her to do therapy <laughs> with Chad and Dale. Yeah, and how that like the slapstick throughout the sort of mounting chaos, everything getting worse and worse is is a lot of fun throughout. But that scene in particular, how like the the whippersnipper takes that girl's face <laughs> off, and then he throws the Molotov yeah. cocktail, or or no, it's it's he gets that. Guy gets set on fire and then she tries to put it... Someone tries to put it out with, like, moonshine. <laughs> <laughs> like, the way that it just gets worse and worse is a, is a lot of fun. Like, the sort of um, Rube Goldberg machine of, like, domino pieces fall into the worst possible outcome mm. is very Yeah, amusing. and the bit with the cop when he leans against the post <laughs> that we've already been set up as being dangerous. Mm. He gets, boom, gets it stuck in his head. He goes out sort of all fucked up and goes to the car. Yeah. Like, and, and then the, and, the gun with the safety on and like... <laughs> yeah. Turn the safety off! 
But uh, I, I you... that is a fantastic moment. I love when Tucker turns to him and it's like, safety turn the off. safety off. <laughs> the way that 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 Tucker, my favorite part of this movie, frankly, the bit that gets the comedy that gets me the most is the way that Tucker and Dale are just so confused and bewildered by all of this happening. Yeah. But, like, they just genuinely don't know what's happening. Yeah. I love the um, little- I do think that- mm. I do think that some of the more successful sequences in this movie kind of come out of the sort of playing on classic horror moments. Like that moment of them at the, like, we got your friend. <laughs> um, or the, uh, like like you mentioned, that when the, the cop comes. I think that that plays, like, that sort of reveal there of what looks like a, a really classic sort of horror thing of the sheriff coming and him going in alone and then the horror villain getting the, the upper hand with him. I mean, the way that that is sort of unpacked into just another step in this very bad day for these very unlucky hillbillies <laughs> is... And very unlucky college students as well. Hmm. There's an idea that I think would have been quite fun if they... If the cop gets, when he goes inside, is convinced about what happened and walks out sort of, sort of, not smiling and laughing with them, <laughs> what but, if, like, the- but sort of like <laughs> patting them on the back and being like, look guys, <laughs> this is a messed up situation. I'm sure it's not as bad as you're saying that it is. But the is. students think that he's And then in the cahoots. kid's taking it the wrong way <laughs> and thinking that this backwards cop is part of the family quote unquote <laughs> that, I think that would have been a really too. funny idea yeah that would have been a lot of fun I do think that it's like the way it does pretty <laughs> come close to hinting that the cop believes them just before he gets yeah, killed yeah. <laughs> he believes them it just doesn't look good yeah and like and since it is their property you know what are people gonna believe yeah and he's, he's correct with saying manslaughter at it's like, best. It's like, it's not what it looks like for sure, but tell a jury. I don't know. I, yes, the, the jury is going to be a problem, but I, like in terms of the what has happened, Tuck and Dale aren't responsible for no, anything no, in any legal not. sense of the term. It's just what it looks like. Um, I do love the comedy, though, of the guy. No, what, what is it? He's absolutely sprinting full bore, trips, and just flies into the wood chipper. Who's trying well, no, to jump at him? He's trying to jump on him, and then Tucker sort of moves to go and pick up a new <laughs> bit of wood, and he just goes sailing him. <laughs> it's like so clean. It's like a three pointer, just face yeah. first. But then, but like that. he he turns, Tucker turns back. He's like, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> And then from the angle that all the other kids are looking at, as Tucker's trying to pull him out, it looks like he's trying to force the kid, the yeah. rest of the kid through. And like, um, when, when... The pointed stick. When, uh, Allison is helping, uh, Dale dig the hole for the shithouse, it looks like she's digging yes. her own grave. I love that. It comes back to that thing that I was saying. It's less don't judge a book by its cover. It is very much more. It's not what it looks like. <laughs> it's a far more panicked, far more immediate sense of, okay, let's take a step back and let's talk like, this out. Yes. Okay, it looks bad. Like the bit where the cop confronts them and um, They're holding his, just, the guy's legs. Yeah, and 
they're talking about, oh, well, their friend, she tripped and we rescued her. And then the cop's like, you got another one? And uh, Dale's like, yeah, she's in my bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) But the way that, um, that Tucker is so aware of what this looks like, like the way that he is just like tapping, like really hoping that Dale will just shut up or the way that, but at the same time, just it's, it's a terrible situation. He can't explain it himself. Like the bit where Dale is like, why don't we go to police? And, um, Tucker says, Oh, and what are we going to tell them? You know, Heidi ho officer. It was the strangest thing. All these college kids come and start killing themselves all over our property. And then later on, when the cop, when the cop actually turns up, he says the exact same thing verbatim because he can't (laughs) think of anything else. Cause it's the truth. Like, like, I I really like, uh, Dale as a character. He's this big, just big golden retriever Mm. kind of energy. Like, and he's just the sweetheart. He's just a sweetheart. And I, I love that little interaction where uh, Dale just told Tucker he doesn't like fishing. And, like, how hurt Tucker is by that. Yeah. Like, they work together they do a exceptionally lot of really... well. Yeah, they both do excellently. It's just the entire movie, I'm, I'm convinced by Levine. Because... Levine. I've only seen him in a couple of things. He's in New Amsterdam as one of the characters, and I've seen yeah. episodes he's the, of He's that. the head of psychology in New Amsterdam. Yeah. <laughs> so so I've seen him other places, but I am so familiar with Alan Tudyk mm. that even from the jump off, I saw him in the car giving the sort of weird look. I'm like, I can't be scared of Alan Tudyk. <laughs> you need to watch Dollhouse. Dollhouse will make you scared of Alan Tudyk. <laughs> sure, but... I think he's just such a known quantity in my eyes mm. that when I see him, I just think, that's the guy from Firefly. That's it's Wash. that's all made from Night's Tales. It's, that's the guy who voices the chicken in Moana. It's my boy, Wash. My poor boy. It's my boy. He's my boy. And I feel like that character in particular might... It's a very great performance, don't get me wrong, but how noticeable he is as a performer... And how well-known he is as a performer might work to the disadvantage no, of the film. No, no, no. The movie's not trying to trick you. It's it's obvious about what it is from trailers, title, poster. Yeah. And I also think you're overstating how much the general public is aware of Alan Tudyk, especially in 2010. Sure. Yeah. Like, Tudyk is, um, like, a consistently like Probably would have worked a lot better back then. Yeah. Like, Alan I mean, Tudyk's it really is Firefly work. fans... It really is Firefly fans and no one else. <laughs> uh, but, like, Tudyk's always great whenever he shows up. Yeah. He's a very consistent worker. Um, I I particularly love his performance in Doom Patrol as Mr. Nobody. Yeah. Um, that's just a great lot of fun. I just, I don't know, the entire cast works really well. I love how the college students have each of the stereotypes that you would expect the sort of ditzy blonde girl stoner the athletic sports people and it just sets you up because you've got so much history with this idea of group of kids go into the woods and get murdered it plays very well with that kind of thing i feel like we're reaching the end of our conversation here is there anything that you two would like to add that dog is a really good boy. <laughs> yeah, that's a I good boy. I was really worried something would happen to the dog. 
that he's he's a very good boy and he did a really good job. Um, I would just like to say the pace of the thing. It keeps itself yeah. brisk, it keeps itself light and breezy, and that really works to its benefit. Most horror movies are ideally pretty short as is, and mm. most comedies in that same vein are ideally pretty short. So, considering that the movie has a nice brisk pace, light and breezy, that that really worked for me. It didn't the- hold on too long and let the joke, you know, mm. tear itself apart. It it stayed nice and consistent. I, the ending was a bit, eh, how are you going? But yeah. the joke, the, like the key joke of the entire thing is still a great one. Yeah. I, I do agree. The ending, all of the stuff at the mill is kind of a bit iffy. It kind of starts to lose me a bit, but it's not there for much longer after that point. Yeah. So it doesn't do terribly much damage. Also, that intro with the journalist and the cameraman that felt completely unnecessary well yes that's eli craig that's the director and i believe his yeah. wife um but i think it is them sort of i if if there i do wonder i do wonder if there is kind of another version of this movie if there maybe originally was an intent to have that version that we're talking about of maybe playing out the mystery of tucker and dale a little bit longer mm-hmm. Mm. Um, because if that was the case, then that scene would make sense. It would yeah. make sense in the sense that it would tell it, it tells us that there at one point was a killer in the woods. Um, mm. and so if you're trying to sort of confuse the point a little bit for a little bit longer, then that scene yeah. would make sense as it is. I, I mean, it is kind of the cold open of the movie and mm. it's, it's a horror convention and they don't do anything really to subvert it, I think. So it does feel a bit out of place mm. in this movie, but I do think it does serve the narrative purpose yeah. of telling us that whatever it is going on with Tucker and Dale aside, there has, there is a bad history in these woods. There mm. is a person who is dangerous and malicious on purpose here. It's not just mm-hmm. a complete farce, like, I don't know if I want to say spoilers, but very similar to Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Mm. Um, but yeah. that one takes it to the utmost extreme. Yeah. All right. Um, so why don't we now uh, say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favorite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lesko. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie is Alan Tudyk. I think he is giving such a fun performance here. He makes me laugh more than anyone else in the cast. Um, I think that he's sort of like halfway paternal, halfway older brother, halfway sort of bickering friend relationship that he has with Dale is a lot of fun. And I think that the sort of dopey... um, golden retriever energy of dale pairs so well with this sort of like slightly more acerbic slightly sharper um sort of pinky in the brain almost <laughs> dynamic that's got that they got going on there what are we doing uh, tonight a- brain we're gonna do what we do every night fix up the cabin in the woods but uh i think it's a lot of a lot of fun and i think that um he he gets a lot of good physical comedy and a lot of good line deliveries out of what he's asked he's to do. He's very good at in terms of my Yeah, in terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I think I'm going to go with the the bit where the sheriff um, <laughs> finds them with the 
bisected body. <laughs> I think that that's a lot of fun. I think it's a good example of what I'm talking about as being one of the movie's most successful uh, things, which is when it's playing with horror conventions and using horror moments and then subverting them. I think that's a really good example there. I think that bringing the sheriff in um, there at, at that moment is a lot of fun. And the way that that all ends up shaking out into the worst possible version of uh, of how that scene could have gone for Tucker and Dale is a lot of fun as well. Um, so I'm going to go with that scene. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast patron saint character actor, John Lithgow, I'm actually going to go with Tucker. Mm. I think that uh, he would work as, not as Dale, not as the dopey one, but as the as the brain of the dynamic. Mm. Um, I think he would work. I think it's it's even more, like you could cast him at the age that Alan Tudyk was in this movie, but you could also cast him a little bit yeah. older. You could cast him as sort of a more of a, maybe a parent of Dale or or something like that, that I think would give it another interesting blend. And sort of, it would again sort of play into the horror convention of sort of like the dad hillbilly from Texas Chainsaw like, Massacre. You could, who's you, like, I could just picture it now. He's got his big beard. He's like mm-hmm. wearing like, Wife beater singlet, yeah. jeans, yeah, like all real white. Duck Dynasty vibe, like yeah, Duck yeah, Dynasty the, the Dynasty sort of vibe. weird like, old, like like an older lo- wiry chop top. Mm. Yeah, I love the <laughs> idea of sort of like old grizzled, dragging you know bear traps behind him kind of look. Yeah, mm. and th- you have Dale be the muscle. I think that's a lot of fun. <laughs> I think that he he could do everything that is being asked of that character really well and i do think that um he he can disappear enough into roles that it would it would work the same way that alan tudyk is even though we know them as very urbane actors they could work in that space and i think that that would be a good spot for him oh absolutely um i would have to say my mvp has to go to eli craig uh, not only did he direct this but he also wrote this and it's a whip smart script it is brilliantly paced and i just gotta say Nothing is better in the movie than how well the farce is presented. That you always have enough information coming from both sides of the misunderstanding. That you're always at the point where it just stays funny the whole time. You see where they're coming from. You see where each side of the conflict is coming from. And he was also not afraid to make these deaths really gory and like really disturbing. Like jumping headfirst into a... Uh, a mulcher it it just works incredibly well and it's structured like a joke it's incredibly well paced and it all comes from the director uh special props to alan tudyk he is fantastic here as well my favorite scene or sequence is it's gotta be the bit where uh the college kids decide to attack (laughs) (laughs) that first volley yeah Uh, that first volley of it and where the kid tries to jump and, like, ends up in the mulcher, and the other kid trips into the shithouse hole and impales himself. It's just... It's a, it's a volley of stupidity and, and, and clownish farce mixed with horror aesthetic, and the slapstick of it just tickles my funny bones straight up. Uh, basically, any point the college kids end up killing themselves accidentally is my favorite part. And Tucker and Dale's reactions to it, as the sweet boys they are, is just, it's gold. It's comedy gold. And it will never get old. Uh, 
for the John Lithgow recast, I would have to say I 100% agree. He would work exceptionally well as Tucker. And like like John said, it has the the backwards older guy and the younger dumb muscle dichotomy. Uh, just when you look from the outside, but you could have this really like sweet intergenerational friendship. Uh, like these are just two guys that hang out together. They have a good time going fishing, fishing and stuff. Like maybe Tucker takes some very, very much a more paternal role in Dale's life. Uh, and just likes to help, like, guide him do stuff, help him out, be there for him. And that could be really, really sweet, because we get to all, we get to see our first glimpses of Lithgow as scary Lithgow, but then we just, like, find out that he's, he's sweet, nurturing, paternal John Lithgow, and that's, you get him to play basically all sides and all facets, and that would be fantastic. For me, I have to give it to Tyler Labine because he plays the character with such a wide-eyed happiness. He's earnest. The fact that he is just this genuine bloke that is trying to do his best, and when someone is in trouble or in, or in danger, he jumps to help them no matter the cost to himself. He is adorable when he's trying to speak to Allison. And he he and Katrina Bowden have Bowden a fan, Bowman have Bowden. fantastic Katrina Bowd Bowden Bowden yeah they have really fun chemistry in those moments and I just think the character of Dale is so fun to throw into such a f- an honestly fucked up situation <laughs> I I think my favorite scene or sequence is that first the first massive under misunderstandings. Like, I do like the running through the woods and the kid getting impaled on the tree, but just the one-two punch of the mulcher and the shithole spike <laughs> is just fantastic. It happens so quickly. It's like, boom, that boom. <laughs> it happens so quickly that you're stuck in the position of Tucker and Dale of, it's almost like these kids are falling out of the fucking sky or something. <laughs> It's just a lot all at once, and I love the comedy of that. It doesn't move in threes, which I think is a fantastic little subversion. And it's that scene along with them, Tucker and Dale, sort of coming back together and panicking and freaking out and feeling sick and just trying to wrap their minds around what has just happened. And I love when Tucker said when Dale says, I, I don't understand what is happening, and Tucker says something along the lines of, well, it's good that we don't understand, otherwise they would try to kill us too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love the idea that it's just this wacky mass suicide, oh. just in the most insane ways possible. I think that scene is fantastic. I was never laughing as much as in that scene perfect farce and who i would get to who i would get john lithgow to play i was thinking the cop mm. but now that i've heard you guys speak i really love the idea of him as tucker of him being this sort of wire thin older hillbilly sort of not the threat of the pair of him being sort of the ringleader the the, the brains of the operation and Dale sort of being the 
the dopey, oh, we're gonna go get him now, pa, kind of thing, being that sort of stereotype. I am in love with the image of him sort of walking out of the house, just carrying a bunch of chains behind him, looking like a mix between Chop Top and the old man from the quarry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just picturing that, and that is just really funny to me, of playing with that specific idea of the patriarch of the murder cannibal hillbilly family. He's also no stranger to slapstick. He's also no stranger to slapstick, and that really suits here, even though Major props to Alan Tudyk. He throws his entire self into this performance, and it cannot be easy swinging around even a fake chainsaw while you're running through the woods. And he does a remarkable job at that character. But I would give Lithgow that role, because you can even further play on the cliches, stereotypes, and tropes of hillbilly horror, or Appalachian murder business. Needed more banjo. Yeah, that that is like, a su- there's a surprising lack of banjo in this movie. I'm <laughs> I'm imagining a scene where it's at night and you're just seeing Tucker just outside playing the banjo like in the it. middle of the night and the kids watching it being like that is the most fucked up thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> entire life. Kind of thing. I like that idea. So now we are going to put it to a vote whether or not we are a pro Tucker and Dale versus Evil podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? I'm just going to spike the balloon right now. The answer's no. Um, I like a lot of this movie. I have a lot of fun watching it. I laughed a lot. The performances were really good. I thought a lot of the writing was clever, but it doesn't get over the line. I think that that third act really does a lot to drive me away from really embracing the movie as I want to. Uh, and I think that there's just a little bit of, I don't know, a few missed opportunities along the way in addition to that that, that keep me from really holding it close. Hmm. And uh, and so I've got to say, no, I don't think we should be a pro Tucker and Dale versus Evil podcast. I would, I agree with you, Lawson. That third act muddies the waters. It it The real sticking point for me is the... The, the the child of rape thing it's a way it's way too serious a concept to be bringing into something so light and fluffy bloody but yeah light and fluffy and it kind of mixes its messages there and also that just that last act at the logging thing it's just a bit too action comedy for me not not enough horror comedy for me you know uh it's like chad's got it up on like a contraption to sorrow in half, for Christ's sake. It's it's basic and simple in terms of threat structure, and it doesn't really trade off any of the tropes. It's just a very simple third-act threat thing. So, mm. I like it a lot. I, I really enjoy the farce of it all. I have a great time with the movie. I love the performances and its pace, but it's really not of the caliber we talk about when we talk about uh, our prestige blu-ray line i'm in agreement with you guys that third act sort of it's too cliched it's not subversive enough it would have been more subversive if chad does die when the house burns down and something falls on him that would have been a a thing of no this is sort of quote-unquote real people going through a thing that being the ending would have been more subversive but it's 
too cliched. He ties her to a machine. She's going towards the saw. There's a hillbilly chainsaw lead pipe fight, which is fine. I understand what it's doing. But it again, it's too cliched. It works off of those tropes and plays them too straight mm. in that moment. And that goes to the reveal that he's part hillbilly, that he's a child of rape. It's too serious a plot twist to really fit with the tone of this film. And it is too much of a... It muddies the waters of that idea of not all hillbillies. And I think it would have been better if he was just this yuppie kid who had a misunderstanding about what happened and was told this horror story by his grandmother, Mm. which has sort of twisted his mind into this very elitist, bigoted kind of uh, frame of mind. It muddies the waters of that. So while I do love a lot of this, and this is a cult classic, it sort of fumbles at the try line for me. It's still a lot of fun, and I do recommend it to all of our listeners, but just be aware that it sort of doesn't quite stick the landing as much as we would like it to. So, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are unfortunately not a pro Takun Dale versus Evil podcast. But in that same token, we're not an anti- this movie podcast, there's so much to love mm. about this film. Still had a very great time. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find those at Exit Through the Candy County if it's drawn myself and on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, for now at least, <laughs> um, where you can give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. Have you seen Tucker and Dale vs. Evil? What do you think about it? What is your favorite horror comedy? I would say that mine is still probably Cabin in the Woods. Uh, uh drag me to hell for me. <laughs> you yeah. tricked me, you black-hearted whore. Uh, I gotta go with, with Harley, I think, Cabin in the Woods for me. Actually, no, I changed my mind, Army of Darkness. Fair. Army of Darkness. I'm still blown away by some of the special effects in that movie. Huh. I still don't know how they did some of it. Sam Raimi is a mad genius in my eyes. Uh, so... Yep, all of that on the Twitter. You can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that when you're commenting on certain podcast apps, it's for specific episodes, and on others, it's for the show on the whole. Your mileage simply varies wherever you get your podcasts from. But please do like, comment, and subscribe. I've not spent much time outside of the Mega City since it's been established. I've mentioned before how our enclosures are climate-controlled, but the broader, sea, broader city is climate-controlled as well. Uh, Of course, climate change has gotten worse over time. The machines have done their best to stem the tide, but a lot of stuff is irreversible. Uh, I have been offered an opportunity to have an excursion outside the gates. Uh, I say offered an opportunity, but it's closer to something like uh, modern-day jury duty, where you can fendangle your way out of it, but you are heavily encouraged and paid to perform your duty. Uh, the reason for this is a research one. Uh, they bring people out to help find certain objects from the outside world that perhaps machines don't appreciate uh, the way we do, and it's always really important to put things in perspective, you know? Everything could be worse. Of course, there is an armed escort that guides the group through. So it's a situation of conscription, almost? 
Well, it's like everyone takes their turn going out to not so much scavenge. not so much conscription like jury duty. It right. it gets in the way of your normal day to day, but you know I've actually done jury duty, but that's another story. Uh, but Lawson, what do we have prepared for us next week? Well, next week we will be sticking with horror, but with a more sort of classical kind of horror than Tucker and Dale afforded us. We will be talking about the 2010 Wolfman remake by Universal Pictures. Uh, If you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Netflix. You can also find it available for rental and purchase on the Amazon, YouTube and Apple stores. So uh, tune in next week because we are, of course, the pro-Werewolf podcast. But will we be the pro-Wolfman podcast? You'll have to check to find out. I've spoken about this movie before yeah. uh, on the podcast, but it'll be good to dive in deep to it because uh, I have a I have a lot of love for werewolves and particularly the story of the Wolfman in its myriad forms. So join us next week for when we discuss the Wolfman. I have been Harley Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be Jean Lewis. <laughs> <laughs>